0: Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Thursday, September 24th, 2020, I'm Jackson Bird. A guide to saying no for people pleasers, a recently discovered secret party room located under Grand Central Terminal, and other strange breaking news from the New York City subway, experts weigh in on why humans evolved to have butts. And the mysterious reason the internet went out every morning at 7am across an entire village in Wales. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Sort of following up on yesterday's segment about being able to prioritize which tasks might require your full potential and which can be reasonably skimped on, I wanted to share some tips on saying no. Especially if you're a people pleaser trying to work on yourself, or if you run in certain self-care kind of circles, you're probably familiar with the important practice of saying no. It's good to make sure you don't commit to things you aren't able to do, or let people walk all over you with requests. But for some of us, it's exceptionally difficult to do, whether because we can't bear disappointing people by declining, or we're just too excited about every opportunity that comes our way. Whatever the particular source may be for you or someone in your life, I found these tips from NPR's Life Kit pretty helpful and kind of unique to the many tips that I've heard in the past. Most of these tips come from Natalie Liu, a writer and artist who coaches people to nix their people-pleasing tendencies. Although she notes that it's not just people-pleasers who struggle with saying no, perfectionists can also fall victim to the curse. The first step is to become aware of your problem with some hard data. Over the course of a week, write down how many times you say yes, no, or maybe to requests. And record how those things made you feel. Did some of them stress you out? Did some of them anger or annoy you? Try to dig into what's behind those feelings. Is it a particular type of task or particular person who's bugging you? Is it subconsciously reminding you of a bigger issue in your life? Maybe some past trauma? Lou says, quote, People-pleasing is a response to old hurts and loss. It's undoubtedly a survival and coping mechanism that we've learned in childhood and then just continue on in adulthood, end quote. And she also adds, quoting NPR, This habit can also be a survival tactic for those from marginalized backgrounds to repress who they are, end quote. But the good news is that if you're paying attention to it, you're one step closer to figuring out a good solution for you. And speaking of solutions, here are some other suggestions. You can start with making a goal for yourself of saying no a certain number of times a week. Now, of course, this quota may not work in practice, or it may just be hard for you to curb your yes-man tendency so quickly, and so you may not hit the goal. But that's okay. Even just having a goal in mind and trying will make a difference. Another thing you can do is pay attention to how you're spending your time. Again, this can go back to tracking what you do for a sample week, but in this case, really look at how busy you were. What specifically were you spending your time on? How many of those things were requests that you said yes to? And consider what your energy levels were like. Not only might this be a reality check to how many of your tasks are things you potentially could have said no to, but it can also be a guide for future requests. If you have a better idea of how much time you actually have to give to other people, you can feel more empowered to say no because you know you actually don't have the spare time. And don't forget that it's not just about actual spare time. Your spare time shouldn't be entirely up for grabs. You need downtime, and you need wiggle room for requests or opportunities that you actually want to say yes to. And if you struggle to parse out which opportunities you do want to do and which ones you want to do because you want to keep the peace or make someone else happy or you just feel obligated to do so, start practicing pausing. No matter how certain you feel about your response to a quest, make yourself pause before you give your answer. It can get you into the habit of really considering the request, and so long as you still get back to the person in a reasonable period of time, might even give them the impression that you're someone who seriously and responsibly considers all decisions you make, which, if you're following these tips, you are. But if that all sounds like a lot, if you're someone who really, truly does struggle with people-pleasing, Lou recommends the art of the soft no. Quoting NPR, Lou says there's a difference between a hard no and a soft no. A hard no is a clear, concise, and brief, no thank you, or, thanks so much for asking, but I'm not able to this week. A soft no might be easier for a recovering people pleaser. That's when you give more of an explanation. For example, thank you so much for asking me to do this project. It sounds really exciting, but I don't have the bandwidth for it at this time. Simple. Lou says the soft no should only be about three sentences long. A common mistake, she says, is giving too much of an explanation or being overly apologetic. Doing that can give the person asking for the favor an opportunity to ask for more, or it can just or it can just make the person confused, end quote. So gather some data on when you're saying yes or no and how you're spending your time. Assess what you might be feeling behind those requests. Take time to pause before committing one way or the other, and maybe start out with some soft practice no's. A couple of local stories from my neck of the woods here in New York City, both to do with our subway. The first one is really making waves online. The Metropolitan Transit Authority, or MTA, who's in control of the subway here, proposed a few new rules at their board meeting yesterday, one of which included officially banning pooping on the subway. Specifically, the proposed rule prohibits unsanitary behaviors, quote, including but not limited to spitting, defecating, or urinating, except in facilities provided, end quote. Which is all well and good, except that there aren't really any facilities provided. Some stations technically have restrooms, but most of them are locked at all times. I mean, the U.S. in general, and New York City specifically, really sucks at providing public restrooms. The primary public restrooms in the city are inside of Starbucks's, which I think says a lot about the role of corporations versus the government. But anyways, from now on, if you want to drop a deuce on a New York City subway, you'll have to pay a $100 fine. But in less gross subway news, a secret party room was discovered deep in the bowels of Grand Central Station. At the end of track 114, hidden inside a locked storage room only accessible via the locksmith shop, three MTA employees secretly created a veritable man cave, complete with a futon, mini-fridge, pull-up bar, flat-screen TV, Amazon Fire Stick, and lewd drawings on the furniture. When it was uncovered, the fridge contained a jar of peanut butter and a half-empty can of Lagunitas which tracks with the official complaint documents alleging the purpose of the room was to, quote, hang out and get drunk and party. When a coworker had a dispute with one of the men who created the party room, the secret was blown and all men involved were easily identified by stupid mistakes like leaving receipts for items purchased with their names on them in the room and the Wi-Fi hotspot connecting to their personal phones. The three employees have been put on administrative leave without pay and are facing possible firing by the MTA Office of the Inspector General. But at least they'll go down in history alongside other secret underground train station hideouts, or at the very least in the history of fairly epic ideas poorly executed by dude bros. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash and see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at fanduel.com slash PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania must not have previously placed Any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. There are a lot of things that separate us humans from other animals. Our use of tools, sophisticated speech and planning capabilities, the way we've taken over and in some ways destroyed much of the planet, but also our butts. The shape and function of our backsides is pretty unique to our species. But why? To what end? How did it develop? Gizmodo recently spoke to a team of experts to provide some clarity on our rear ends. Let's start with a basic anatomical breakdown from Jason Burke, a paleontologist and assistant professor of anatomy. Quote, The structures we refer to as the butt cheeks in humans are comprised of the gluteal muscles, gluteus minimus, gluteus medius, and gluteus maximus. Of the three gluteal muscles, gluteus maximus is responsible for the signature shape of the human derriere. It originates from a line that runs from our upper ilium, the pelvic bone that people often call their hips, down toward our coccyx, or tailbone. The muscle attaches close to the top of our femur, or thigh bone, end quote. Burke explains that the gluteus maximus is the driving force behind leg extension and postural changes, and it needs a lot of force to do those things, which is why it's so big. But also, quote, since there's not a lot of space for the muscle to sit, the muscle fibers expand outwards, and thanks to gravity, downwards, resulting in our hallmark hind ends, end quote. And that hallmark shape of the gluteus maximus specifically is unique from other species due to how we evolved from quadrupedal to bipedal. We're the only primates to exclusively walk bipedally. Gorillas and chimpanzees can do it for short periods of time, but their pelvises can't support it to the extent that ours can for long durations. As Kirsten Brown, assistant professor of anatomy and regenerative biology at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences, points out, Our pelvises are flared with the upper portions at the side of the body, whereas in chimps and gorillas, the upper pelvis is positioned towards the back. When we began walking upright solely on two legs, our pelvis changed so it could hold the full weight of our top halves, which required changes to the positioning of many of our hip muscles, most notably the gluteus maximus, which had to kind of hang down, essentially creating butt cheeks, which don't really exist in other mammals. The closest analog is seen in horses, but their round backsides are actually made up of their gluteus medius, as is the case for most non-human mammals. But digging deeper into that evolutionary factor, Francois Tyrion, the curator of dinosaur paleocology at the Royal Tyrrell Museum, explains how the first four-legged animals to walk on land about 350 million years ago had large tails, and the muscle in their tail that connected to their thighs was called the caudofemoralis. That muscle was itself a holdover from their aquatic ancestors who used it to swim. But in land dwellers, it was used to pull the hind limb backwards and propel the animal forward. As such, the muscle has been retained in many animals today, in particular reptiles with long tails. However, in mammals, or originally in synapsids, the ancestral lineage of mammals, Tails shrunk over time, with the caudofemoralis gradually being replaced in function by the gluteal muscles as the primary muscles involved in locomotion. All control of locomotion was ceded to the gluteal muscles when humans became fully bipedal about 6 million years ago. Quoting Tyrion, add to this a few fatty pads strategically located for cushioning so the gluteal muscles don't get damaged by rubbing against the hip bones while walking or sitting and you have the evolution of formal butt cheeks, end quote. Both Susan Larson, professor and chair of anatomical sciences at Stony Brook University, and the aptly named Jason Organ, assistant professor of anatomy and cell biology at Indiana University School of Medicine, pointed out that among the other practical reasons for our large glute maximae is that our ancestors might have been into big butts. It's tough to prove for certain, but sexual selection does play a large role in many aspects of evolution. Daniel E. Lieberman, professor and chair of human evolutionary biology at Harvard, however, attributes the size and shape of our gluteal muscles to one main thing, running. Quoting him, We barely use the gluteus maximus when we walk, but when we run, it plays a key role in controlling the trunk, extending the leg behind you, and slowing the leg you are swinging in front of you. Interestingly, we can see from fossil record this muscle expansion occurred around 2 million years ago with the evolution of Homo erectus and the origins of endurance running, end quote. Lieberman also points out that our reproductive and energy systems require more fat than other mammals, and that even the skinniest humans are fatter than most mammals. So it turns out there are a lot of reasons why we have these unique butts. Walking upright, running, protecting the parts of our bodies that changed as we evolved, and potentially attracting mates. It sounds like the plot of a sci-fi novel. In fact, it's literally part of the plot of a sci-fi novel I read last month. Hank Green's A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. Every morning for 18 months, the broadband internet went out in a small village in Wales. Engineers ran a cable replacement program, but it didn't work. Every morning at 7 a.m. on the dot, the internet would go out for the entire village. The engineers were stumped until they used a monitoring device called a spectrum analyzer and walked around the village looking for electrical noise. Engineer Michael Jones said, quote, "...at 7 a.m., like clockwork, it happened. Our device picked up a large burst of electrical interference in the village." But it was not alien tech. It was, instead, a second-hand television set that an anonymous householder was turning on every morning at 7 a.m., and which emitted enough electrical interference, specifically a single high-level impulse noise or shine, to affect the broadband signal and knock out the internet in the whole village." The TV owner has said that they were mortified and has agreed not to turn the TV on ever again. Quoting BBC, Suzanne Rutherford, OpenReach chief engineer's lead for Wales, said anything with electrical components, from outdoor lights to microwaves, can potentially have an impact on broadband connections. We'd just advise the public to make sure that their electrical appliances are properly certified and meet current British standards, she said, end quote. Which is good to know, except most people probably wouldn't be aware that their device is causing any sort of problem. I mean, it took them 18 months to work this one out. I don't think that your average Joe would necessarily ever think that older technology like an outdated TV could affect modern tech like broadband. But, of course, it can, and I do think it's interesting to see the interplay of older and newer technology It almost reminds me of how devices that run on electricity go haywire at Hogwarts because all of the magic interferes with them, which was definitely based on a real scientific theory and not a convenient explanation as to why the characters didn't watch TV or use computers. That was an exceptionally weird mix of stories today. I'll try to be a bit more highbrow tomorrow. But for now, I'm going to go hit my no quota for the week by saying no to every text that I get, even if it wasn't a request. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.